So we'll, we'll round up everybody. We'll start in. We'll, we'll pray and we'll get started. It's good to see everybody here. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together to learn more about your word. We pray, Lord, that as we look at these heresies regarding the Trinity and the nature of your Son, that you'd give us clarity and the ability to help those who are in darkness, who don't know Christ, and that we'd be uh, given opportunities to proclaim your gospel. I pray also for the sermon today, Lord, that you'd help us to understand the warnings in 1 Corinthians 11 about abusing the body of Christ. And we pray that you'd give your peace upon Bob and give us ears to hear. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, last time we were talking about, and I, I do have some Proverbs material. I handed you that assignment, so hopefully we'll get to the beginning of that this time. But I want to finish talking about the various Christological heresies and the heresies regarding the Trinity. And that is because time and time again you will have Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons who will come to your door and they do hold to a different Christ. They hold to a different gospel. They have a different spirit. And so we left off on this slide where we talked about Arianism. If you remember, Arius was that 4th century heretic who denied the divinity of Christ. And Athanasius, as you recall, was the one who had to refute him. They were both, I believe, if I remember correctly, from Alexandria. And I think I kind of joked about how they would excommunicate one another. So whoever was in power, the other would be excommunicated. I think Athanasius was excommunicated like four or five times in his life. So as bad as your life is, just think about at least you haven't been excommunicated. So... Yeah, right? (laughs) You've got that going for you. So I want to talk about what Athanasius did because it's the same thing the Jehovah Witnesses did. And remember, we left off here where they distort passages about Christ and they use these passages to try to claim that Jesus had a beginning, that there was a time when he was not. Remember, that was Arius' famous saying. And so they would appeal to like John 1.14 where it said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so they pick up on that phrase, only begotten, and they say, aha, that means there was a time that Christ did not exist, and then he came into existence. But remember last time we talked about how that phrase, only begotten, that you see in red on the screen, the term monogenes, that's the phrase in Greek, it means one of a kind or unique. The one and only would be a good way of translating that. And so it doesn't have to do with them coming into existence at a certain point in time, but the idea that Christ is unique, that there's none like him. And I gave the evidence for that. I just want to cite it again. We don't have to turn to it. But remember in Luke 7.12, Luke 8.42, and Luke 9.38, each of those passages had that same phrase used, monogenes, same term referring to an only child. There was somebody that wanted Jesus to heal their only son or their only daughter. And so the term monogenes was used. And so only didn't mean that they came into existence. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis was that they were the only one, the unique one. And so that's exactly how it's being used for Christ, that there's none like him. Now, again, when we talk about Jesus Christ being truly God and truly man, that is unique. But remember, being unique does not mean a contradiction. We are not saying that Jesus is truly God and not truly God, or truly man and not truly man. No, we're saying that he's truly God and truly man in one person. Again, many of you in here are truly daughters and truly mothers, truly fathers and truly sons. And yet, that's not a contradiction. You're the same person. Okay, now Jesus is the only one who's ever been truly man and truly God. So he's the unique one. The monogenes. The other passage we talked about that the heretics often use to distort the person and work of Christ is Colossians 1.15, where he's referred to, notice it says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the term firstborn there, prototokos, remember, that means not just that he was the first part of creation. That's not what it's referring to. What it really means is that he is the one that has the inheritance rights. 
So in the ancient Near East, if you had a firstborn son or a firstborn daughter, I believe, in some cultures, they were given the inheritance rights, meaning a double portion. Okay, so this explains then why God would say of Israel in Exodus 4.22, remember to Pharaoh, Moses was to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. That did not mean that Israel came into existence prior to any other nation. What it meant is that they had his inheritance rights. Okay, that's the importance of the idea of the firstborn. Now, let me prove that to you. Let's build on that a little bit because I didn't get into this last time. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers eight seventeen through 18. I just want to talk a little bit about this firstborn concept. Numbers eight seventeen through 18. And I want you, as you're turning to Numbers chapter 8, verses 17 through 18, I want you to see that in the ancient Near East, many of the deities, the false gods, they required the death of the firstborn. And so what's significant about Yahweh is he provides a substitute for his firstborn, the sons of Israel that belong to him. What he does is he takes the Levites instead. But what it shows you is the importance of the firstborn. The firstborn denotes the strength of, of the womb, as they often called it. And one of the reasons I think the ancients thought that way, and the Bible doesn't affirm this, it just builds off of it, is that a lot of people in the ancient Near East believed that the firstborn son or daughter had greater strength because they were able to break open the womb. And in, in their idea, it was a more difficult uh, delivery process because they were the first out. But also in their mind is that they were the pathbreaker. And so, therefore, they deserved the inheritance rights. Well, the Bible, again, doesn't affirm that scientifically, but it does build off of it. And listen to what it says in Numbers eight seventeen through 18. The Lord said, For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. So just think about it. He has a substitute. God takes the Levites. If you belong to Moloch, if that was your God, he'd require the death of your firstborn son or daughter. But that's abhorrent to the true God of Israel. He takes a sacrifice. That is, the Levites are going to serve him in his temple. Okay. Now, what's interesting is turn your Bibles to Hebrews 12.23. I want you to see that you and I are regarded as God's firstborn because of what Christ did that you and I are the ones who have now the inheritance right. So we see that in Hebrews 12, 23. And again, I'm showing you this just to show you that firstborn has to do with inheritance rights, not the idea that you came into existence at a point in time or were the first to be born into the world. Hebrews 12, 23. Hope you've turned there. Here, the writer of Hebrews says, to the general assembly, so this is to the church, and he says, and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Does everyone see the phrase, the church of the firstborn? More than likely, that genitive construction there isn't that we're the church of Christ, although that would be true. In other words, of the firstborn, Jesus Christ is the firstborn. But more than likely here, firstborn is a title for us, that we are the firstborn of God. Um, It's Hebrews 12, 23. And the reason that's significant is because in Christ, you and I were given the inheritance rights too. Why? Because we belong to him by faith. All right. Now, Brian had a passage um, that he's going to read for us. And before you read it, I'll have everybody turn to it. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. This passage is designed to show that indeed the firstborn had to do with inheritance rights. So again, Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17. This is a great passage, by the way, if you're going to turn to one to refute the Jehovah Witnesses that say firstborn means that they were the, Jesus was the first to come into existence. This would be a great passage to show, no, firstborn is about inheritance. So Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn son 
belongs to the unloved, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons. He cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. In him belongs the right of the firstborn. So there can't be this double standard where even though the unloved wife has the firstborn status, because the man loves his other wife more, he can't take the firstborn status from the unloved wife's son. But notice here in verse 17, the key issue is a double portion. That's the issue with the firstborn. So that's what you want to connect here, I think, to Colossians 1.15, the idea the firstborn gets the inheritance rights. So again, when they're claiming these are passages that claim Jesus came into existence, they're not. They're just simply misunderstanding how these terms are used in the culture of the day. Now, I want to go on. I talked about this passage, Colossians 1.16. Remember, here's a great passage we can use to prove the divinity of Christ. Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Well, if he created all things, he's the creator. He's the God of Genesis 1.1. So remember, what do the Jehovah Witnesses do when they come to your door? They're going to have a different translation. Their Bible will say New World Translation, NWT. And what you'll do is you have them turn to Colossians 1.16, and when you look in their Bible, you know what will be in the margins? It'll have, let me point to where it'll be. It'll be in the margins, but they'll have a bracket and then they'll have it here, it'll say, by him, all other things. So they have other in brackets, and they'll have it also in their margin. And so what you want to ask them is, why is other inserted in brackets? Well, they have to admit that it's not original to the Greek. So the question is, well, why is it inserted in there? Well, the reason they've inserted it in there is they don't like the implication that Jesus is the creator of all things, right? Because he's supposed to have been created himself. So... That's one that you want to for sure uh, point to. Yeah, Brian. Just out of curiosity, in the Mormon Bible, which I've never seen, uh, would there be anything in the margins for the one John, or for the the John 1.14 verse that we just did? You know, I don't know. Um, It's a good question. I don't know. I've never, I've dealt more with Jehovah's Witnesses at the door than them, than the, the Mormons. Um, oh, the Jehovah Witnesses? Um, I'm sorry, uh, John 1.14. Yeah. You know, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think it's there in their New World Translation. They just simply get it wrong. But to be, to be honest with you, if I can just back up, this is John 1.14 taken from the New American Standard Bible. I don't really like that rendering, yeah. only begotten. I, I think this is one where you want to render it the unique one or the one and only. Okay, so if I were, if I were giving my own translation, it would be the glory, glory as the the unique or the the one and only from the father something like that i don't like only begotten that seems to suggest that there's some sort of uh you know coming into existence yeah and that's not what that's not how the term is being used so it's funny sometimes our versions go out of their way to give you a interpretation rather than a translation when they shouldn't be doing that here's one where i think they should they should be giving you a little bit of a interpretation because that's how the term is always used it's always referring to the one is unique and i showed you that in those luke passages it always had to do with the one and only son or daughter but good question brian i'm sorry i don't know the answer to that but i know they they have that in brackets in colossians 116 so let me show you one that's very exciting titus 213 if there's one passage that just directly states jesus god uh this is one of them i think we have another one in revelation and I'm just talking about the epistles. But here, Titus 2.13, Paul talks about looking for the blessed hope. Of course, this is going to be the rapture, right? Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, you might notice I have an acronym here, ASKS. That is an acronym that stands for Article, Substantive, Chi, Substantive, And that's a construction in the Greek. And I'll talk about that. Back in the, I think it would have been the 18th century, 
there was a man named Granville Sharp. He was known as the Abraham Lincoln of Great Britain. And Granville Sharp was sharp. He was a trained musician. He self-taught himself Greek because he wanted to be a better scholar. And this guy, remember, he didn't have a fancy Logos uh, computer system where he could look up all these Greek constructions. He had to crank all this out by hand. But he realized anytime you had this type of construction, let me explain what it is. The first part of the construction, you'd have to have the article in Greek. And although it's not translated here, there actually is a definite article in the Greek. So it'd be literally here, and it's not translated, but it's there in the Greek. So anytime you have that, which we have here, and a substantive, which is a noun, God, followed by a chi, which is and, then another substantive, which you have, Savior, the following person is the same. In other words, the substantives have to deal with the same person, not a different one. Okay? So anytime you have an article, substantive, chi, substantive construction, God and Savior are the same person. They're not two different people. And so Granville Sharp, being the sharp man he was, cranked all this out by hand. I can hardly get a gas grill to go together without having extra parts, and this guy is cranking this out in the 18th to 19th century, figuring this all out. So anyway, he was sharp. So the point of this construction is that whoever God and the Savior is, Christ Jesus is. Um, by the way, Dan Wallace, probably the most preeminent New Testament Greek scholar in the 20th into the 21st century now, he titles this TSKS. I don't know why the T is there. So one day I got to have dinner with him. I was blessed. And I asked him just tons of questions. And I asked him, why didn't you put that A there? Because then you have asks. And here's this brilliant man. Where are you having dinner? And he goes, <laughs> isn't that great? Oh, I should have done that. Because it stands for the article. So anyway, I, I kind of laughed about that. But as a little oversight by this genius. But ask, again, article, substantive, kind, yes. Brian. Well, that makes a lot of sense because even in the English language, like if you hear at a speech and somebody's introducing somebody, they'll give his, you know, uh, a professor of yeah. so-and-so and then this, that, and the other thing, and then they say his name. You know that that is the person that That's they were right. just talking about. Exactly right. Well said. Good analogy. By the way, let's say you don't want to bring up Granville Sharp's rule and this, this grammatical rule. Here's a way that you can prove that the Savior has to be Christ Jesus, and the fact that he's called Savior means that he's God. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 43, 11, or just jot it down, Isaiah 43, 11. Isaiah 43, 11, I, I don't have it in my notes here, but I remember it. This is where Yahweh says, I, even I am Yahweh, and there is no Savior besides me. So if there's one Savior, and the Savior's God, if Jesus is ever called Savior, he's God. Why? Because there's only one Savior. Does that make sense? So what I would do, if you have a Bible that you dedicate to the heretics when they come to the door, I would jot down Isaiah 43.11 next to the Titus 2.13. By the way, one more passage. Turn to this one, 1 Timothy 1.1. I'm going to show you another one of the pastoral epistle verses because I'm going to show you how Jesus uh, is linked here, but also how God is called Savior. 1 Timothy 1.1 1, 1 is another one you can have the Jehovah Witness turn to. 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, notice it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus who was our hope. So my point is God is the only Savior, in Titus 2.13, Jesus is called Savior. In other words, even if they deny that he's called God in this passage, if they don't understand the grammatical construction of the Granville Sharp rule, Jesus is certainly being called Savior, and the only Savior is God. Therefore, if Christ Jesus is Savior, he must be God. Okay, now I don't have this passage, but all of you have heard of John 1.1, 1, 1, and I just want to reveal to you what they do with John 1.1, 1, 1, the Jehovah Witness. The Jehovah Witness will render... All of you know John 1, 1 by heart. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Listen to how they distort that. The New World Translation, they put in there, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, excuse me, and the Word was a God. 
So they have an indefinite article. Boo. Yeah, boo. <laughs> boo, um, bad translation. Now, what's interesting is we, don't, we can't get into the grammar here. There's also another grammatical rule which disproves them. It's called Colwell's rule. But I don't think any of you want to stand there and say, hey, did you know a pre-verbal anarthrous predicate and nominative is hardly ever indefinite, seldom definite, but it's almost always qualitative. I don't think you want to have to go through all that. So let's just use the English Bible and refute that a God is a good translation. Let's say to the Jehovah Witness when they come to the door, if they open John 1.1 and it says a God, ask them, is Jesus a true God or a false God? Oh, I'm sorry, um, I didn't see you, Norm. Go ahead. Um, getting back to First uh, Timothy 1.1 where it says God our Savior, Sometimes it's, it's confusing for me when you see the word God, what exactly are they referring to? Sometimes God can mean all three members of the Trinity. Sometimes it seems to just be indicating the Father. And here it's actually indicating God our Savior. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I, I don't know how to sort that out all the time. I, I think you're right, Norm. I think that the, the, the ambiguity at times is deliberate because there's one God and three persons. Sometimes God is a reference to all three members of the Trinity. Yeah. Sometimes you can tell that it's a reference to the Father, right. um, and it's, it's used that way. Context has to tell you. Okay. Um, here, this could be a reference to the entire you know, Trinity, but it, it may more than likely be a reference to the Father just right. because Jesus is mentioned right after. Okay. And here you don't have that asks construction, but the, the point of the First Timothy 1, 1, I know you're not asking about this, but God is specifically called Savior. Well, if Jesus is ever called Savior, then that implies he must be God because there's only right. one Savior who's God. So, but I, again, you're right. There's times where we have to look at the phrase God as Paul uses it. He's using it for the Father and sometimes just for the whole Trinity, the whole, the whole Godhead. Thank you. Absolutely. So very good, astute point. And again, context will tell you how it's used. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Bob. One thing we need to be always aware of is authorial intent. Yes, and so John good. wrote John. What did John mean by that? Exactly. And sometimes um, if you ignore authorial intent, you can make a lot of confusing ideas that aren't being claimed. Right. For example, I like to watch basketball, and sometimes the uh, an announcer will say, that was a bad foul, it wasn't right, and then the guy misses the shot. Yes. And then they say, well, the ball doesn't lie. Mm. Now, that is meaning, we, we know it's a bad call, call, but as a matter of fact, balls don't lie or tell anything. Right. Sometimes in golf, you'll, I wouldn't use this, but you hear announcers say, the golf gods. Yeah. Have you heard that? Yeah. That's not proof that every golf announcer is polytheist. Right, right. Okay, because I wouldn't say it, but they say that. They mean, well, the ball landed in a weird place. It must have been the golf guys. They're not yeah. necessarily polytheists. Right. I wouldn't say that. And so when John, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, has all these I am sayings throughout John. Exactly. And then he says what he does in the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was God. Right, right. We know what John means from what else John said. Yes. Okay, Amen. so if a monotheist said the golf gods, that doesn't prove they're polytheists. They're using a figure of speech that's exactly. common. Now, when we get to Ephesus, Artemis, they believe, really was a god. Right, right. So that's why you don't miss the idea of authorial intent. Otherwise... Amen. We're back to Babel, and we can't build the tower anymore because God confused the land. <laughs> right. Very good point. Yeah, authorial intent is the key, and that's exactly right. Um, John is the last place you're going to find the idea of polytheism. You just don't find it. And again, the grammatical rule, Colwell's rule, does in some sense refute that the indefinite article should be used there, but you're probably not going to memorize Colwell's rule, nor should you. So here's an easier way to handle the Jehovah Witness with John 1.1. When it talks about a God in their translation, just simply ask them, is it a true God or a false God then that Jesus is? Is he a true God or a false God? Because if they say that he's true God, then you've proven your point. He's God just as the Father is. But if they say, well, he's a false God, 
Well, doesn't the first commandment say, thou shalt have no other gods before me? Now, the reason that's important is because Jesus is clearly worshipped. In fact, turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1.6. This is a passage you kind of want to have in your head for this one. Here the writer of Hebrews talks about how the angels worship him. Well, the only valid object of worship is God. So if Jesus is worshipped, well, he must be true God. Well, then that's the same point that you and I have made, that he's not a God, but he's God. So you have him in a quandary where in a dilemma, there's no good option for them. If they say he's a true God, then they've just proven your point that he's God. But if they say, well, no, he's a false God, then you simply show them Hebrews 1.6, well, he's worshipped. Why would the angels worship a false God? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So Hebrews 1.6, it says, and when he again brings the firstborn, remember the term prototokos? There it's used again, the one with the inheritance rights into the world. He says, and let all of the angels of God worship him. So obviously Jesus is a valid object of worship. Why? Because he's truly God. Okay, so that's probably the better way to handle uh, John 1.1 1, 1, than try to go into Colwell's rule. Okay? But again, Colwell's rule, there was another scholar who did some good work there and showed us that the indefinite article is highly unlikely. All right. Now, let's go to John 8.58. This is one that Bob had just mentioned. It's a very good one to remember to prove that Jesus is God. This is one you always want to have in your back pocket. John 8.58 Jesus said to remember the Jews he's debating with, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So remember the context of this passage. Jesus had said in John 8, 56, he said, Abraham rejoiced when he saw my day. And they said, you're not yet, I think, is it 40 or 50 years old, and yet you've seen Abraham? And that's when he says in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, the term ego, Amy, for I am, Amy is a verb of being. This is building off of how God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. So I want you to turn your Bibles back to Exodus 3.14 because I want you to see what Jesus is building off of. He's clearly alluding back to this text. Again, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus is bringing a link between what he's saying and Exodus 3.14, where God is revealing himself to Moses. So remember in Exodus 3, the context, you have Moses asking, God, who should I say that sent me to the Israelites? So God here reveals his covenant name. Exodus 3.14, it said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Okay, so... If in the Greek Septuagint, you would have ego eimi. That's what you have. In, in the Hebrew, um, well, I'm, I can't point to it because you can't see my note page, but notice the I am, I am. That comes from Yahweh's name. So when we read Lord, all caps in your Old Testament Bible, that's Yahweh in the Hebrew. Well, that comes from a yiktol verb, a verb of being. A yiktol is typically um, future-oriented, but not always. It's the idea that he always is. So it would be like in English, we say that I am. So we're using a verb of being, which really accentuates the idea of what? Eternality. That he always existed. And so the only one who's ever always existed is God. And so Jesus is clearly bringing you back to Exodus 3.14 when he says, I am. And he uses these statements all over the Gospel of John. So clearly this is a declaration of divinity by Christ. He's saying that he's God by claiming that he is the I am, so much so that they want to kill him. They want to kill him. That's the proof that he's claiming that he's God. They want to kill him. They're not trying to kill him because he's claiming something else. They're trying to kill him because he's claiming to be God. So that's what's going on. Now, let me show you one more. This is kind of a fun one in Revelation where you can use to prove that Jesus is God. I believe Revelation 1.8, the more I've studied this text is it just simply is about Christ. Um, very interesting. Notice it says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, now stop there for just a moment. Why is Alpha and Omega important? Because that's the beginning and the end of the alphabet. And so what's being affirmed here is the beginning and the end. He's the eternal one. That's what's being accentuated. So he's the eternal one. Notice it says, says the Lord God, who is and who was 
and who is to come the Almighty. Now, let me just clue you into a little debate that's within our own Christian circles. A big debate that scholars have today is this reference to the Alpha and the Omega. Notice how he's referred to as the Lord God. Is that a reference to the Father? This is something that Norm has been pointing out. It seems somewhat ambiguous. Or is it a reference to the Son? I believe this is a specific reference to the Son. Now, why? Turn your Bibles one verse earlier to Revelation 1.7. Revelation 1.7, I'll prove to you the context, has to do with the Son. But even if we... Well, let me just leave you there. I think it's a reference to the Son, but even if it's a reference to the Father, I'll prove that later on Jesus uses the same language that he's the Alpha and the Omega at the end of Revelation. So we'll show that he's equal to the Father. But I think this is a reference to the Son, that he's called Lord God here. Notice Revelation 1.7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. So notice one verse earlier, who's being referred to is certainly the Son. Notice the phrase, Behold, he's coming with the clouds. That's a reference to Daniel 7.13. That's a reference to the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who comes on the clouds. Notice the reference that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's a reference to Zechariah 12.10. Who was pierced? Well, the Messiah was. The second person of the Trinity, the Son. So certainly, I think in verse 8, we're expecting to say the Alpha and the Omega is the Son, and therefore he's specifically called Lord God. And notice also... I am. I am in John is often used by Jesus. There you have another ego, Amy. Now, what I would say is this is a reference to the Son, clearly called Lord God here. But just to prove the point, turn your Bibles to Revelation 22.13. Revelation 22.13, please turn your Bibles there. Actually, I'm sorry, I... I goofed it. Revelation 22, 12. Just one verse earlier. There, I wrote down Revelation twenty two thirteen because the context shows us this is absolutely Christ. And you can read that in the context. But notice Revelation twenty two twelve. Absolutely, this is Jesus. Notice he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to each man according to what he has done. But then notice, does someone have Revelation twenty two thirteen? I didn't put that down. Can someone read that? Oh, good. Uh, thanks. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Very good. Notice the reference to the Alpha and the Omega. What you do is you pull up that Revelation twenty two thirteen. You say Jesus is specifically the Alpha and the Omega. Therefore, what he's Lord God. So even if John, uh, Revelation one eight is about the Father. Jesus, who was called the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 22.13, therefore, is equal to the Father. But again, I think Revelation 1.8 is about the Son as well because he's called Alpha and Omega in both passages. So clearly, the book of Revelation has a clear affirmation that Jesus is God. And again, these are passages that I think are fairly straightforward. You can bring them to the Jehovah Witness when they come to the door. You don't have to know Granville Sharp Rule or Cowell's Rule. You just can use your English Bible and, and go to work. Now, with that, I want to... Oh, I got one more. I'm sorry, I put up Revelation 22.13. There we go. I forgot that I had it on my own slide. There it is. I wondered why I had so much room on that slide. What a rascal I am. Revelation 22.13, there it is. Alpha and Omega. Same person. Yep, whoever that is, it has to be the son here. He must be Lord God. That's who you want to show him. Oh, yeah. Brian. From the Revelation 1.8... Uh, I find it hard to believe that there's dispute about that within the Christian church because if you take any author and you set up the context of what he's talking about, why would you all of a sudden get to another paragraph, let's say in a novel, or uh, in this case another verse, and all of a sudden just totally change the, the whole context of what you were talking about in the three chapters or verses prior to. Well said. I, I think you're right. I think the, the better evidence is this is strictly the sun. Yeah. I, I do. But um, nonetheless, there are people who give cogent arguments to say, well, no, 
here the switch is to the Father. Um, but nonetheless, for our purposes, if the Father is the Alpha and the Omega, so is the Son, therefore he's God. But again, I think this is clearly a reference to the Son as well. That's what I would say. If I were writing my own commentary, that's how I would come down on it. So, yeah, well said. Very good. Anyone else on that? Uh, yeah, Barb. How handy was that? <laughs> yeah. And if Jesus were making claims to titles that God took for himself, like in Isaiah it says, I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. Yeah. And then here is Jesus in Revelation twenty two thirteen saying that he's the first and the last. Yes. It, that would make him blasphemous an imposter or try, someone trying to be an imposter, we could not worship him. That's right. Very good yeah. point, Barb. Exactly right. And that's precisely why you see the Jews want to kill him. And um, so you're, you're exactly right. Yep. And that's why the Jews want to kill him. They, they know that he's making the claim of, of being God. And so they think it is blasphemous. So that's something we can show the Jehovah Witness to say, well, why are they killing him? Why are they so upset? They must have understood the I am statement as the declaration of divinity, that he is in fact God. That's the only reason that I think they really want, well, it's not the only reason, but that's the primary reason they want to kill him is because of that. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, very astute reading, Barb. Thank you. Very good. Um, So we'll keep moving here. We'll talk about Christological heresies. Now I want to talk about how in the past the distortion of Christ's person and work has been accomplished. But I also want to talk about how it's done now. And I want to show you a way that we should understand Christ, both his person and his work, and talk about the hypostatic union. So let's begin with some early Christological heresies. The, one of the earliest was called Ebionism. The term Ebionism actually comes from Ebionim, a Hebrew ter- term that means the poor ones. Now this is a very early heresy, 2nd century A.D., This is a heresy that Irenaeus fought against all the way back in the second century. And the idea in Ebionism is that Jesus was just a man who was adopted as God's son at his baptism where he's anointed and therefore he's made the Messiah. But he's never truly God in the sense that he has the being and essence of God. They just say he's adopted as God's son. So he's just merely a mortal, a human being who was given the messianic status at his baptism. Uh, those were the Ebionites. Yep. So again, Irenaeus, one of the first uh, founding fathers, as it were, of the faith, they call him, he, um, he was fighting against Ebionism back in his day. So that was a denial of the divine nature of Christ. Now, docetism, by the way, this term comes from the Greek term dokeo, which means to seem. And that's a good verb to remember because docetism says that Jesus only seemed to be human. So whereas Ebionism is an attack on the divinity of Christ, Docetism was an attack on his, his true humanity, that he only appeared to be a man, but he really wasn't. By the way, I think that that's the heresy that undergirds why John wrote the epistle of 1 John. He was dealing with Docetism. Uh, false, there was a false teacher named Serenthus who tried to claim that Jesus was not truly human. Okay? Now, let me show you evidence of this. Turn your Bibles to 1 John 4, 2. This is a very interesting text where I think we see John is refuting the idea that Jesus is not truly human. 1 John 4, 2. And again, I think docetism was the heresy. Now, by the way, as you're turning to 1 John 4, 2, I want you to remember that at this time, as John was writing this, there wasn't something called full-blown Gnosticism, but there was an incipient form of it starting to brew. In other words, the early ideas of Gnosticism were, were starting to brew in the ancient world. Now, remember, in Gnosticism, you have this duality where there's a battle between good and evil, but everything that's physical is bad. Everything spiritual is good. So can you see then why the Gnostics would say Jesus was not truly human? Because if he was truly human, he truly had flesh. Everything physical is bad. Therefore, they want to get him divorced from physical, a physical status so that they couldn't say that he was bad. 
Does that make sense? Anything physical was bad. By the way, I think you might see an incipient form of that in 1 Corinthians. Remember Paul's dealing with those who denied the resurrection? Why were they denying the resurrection? Because they were spiritual. Remember in 1 Timothy, you have the people in Ephesus, the false teachers saying the resurrection had already occurred. How could they get away with saying the resurrection had already occurred? Well, it was spiritual. It wasn't physical. So do you see how big a deal this is? The idea that, no, Jesus Christ physically came. God became man. And notice what John says. This is the whole test of orthodoxy. 1 John 4, 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. If you don't confess that Christ has come in the flesh, that he's truly a man, you're listening to a different spirit. That's what the Apostle John is saying. So again, why is it important that Jesus is truly man? Well, it's important because he has to represent us. He is tempted, as it says in Hebrews 4.15, in all ways that you and I are, yet with what? Without sin. So he has to bear our sins. Being our new representative, he has to be truly a man. Uh, The new representative that Adam had failed to be, the perfect representative that Adam had failed to be. Okay, so that's what we need. So that's why he has to be completely man as well as being completely God. Arianism, I've already talked on that. Again, Arianism denies the divinity of Christ. He was a 3rd, 4th century Alexandrian uh, priest. Uh, Nestorianism, this is one we haven't hit yet. Nestorius, he was a bishop of Constantinople. A lot of trouble comes out of Constantinople, by the way. This is the claim that Christ had two natures, but they were in two distinct persons. So in a sense, you had two different Christs. You had one divine Christ and you had one human Christ. So this is a Christ that's man and a Christ that's God, but not united in one person. Okay? That's Nestorianism. Again, 5th century bishop of Constantinople. Let me give you another one. Eutychianism. Eutychianism denied the distinction of the natures. Um, What Eutyches believed, he was another... 4th or 5th century bishop out of Constantinople. Nothing good comes out of Constantinople, it seems. Right? Uh, As far as theology. So what Eutyches taught, this heretic, is he said that Jesus' divine nature absorbed his human nature. And therefore, you no longer had a distinction between the two natures. So... This is something I'm going to talk about later, how we get Christ and his person right. We have to distinguish between the natures of Christ, but we can't separate them. The two natures are always linked to one person. We must distinguish between the two natures, but we can't separate them. But we also can't mingle them. We distinguish two natures, one person, but we can't separate them, nor can we mingle them. Does that make sense? We'll talk more about that in a bit. So that's Eutychianism. He mingled it. Here's Apollinarianism, denied Christ human spirit. So Apollinarius was a, uh, what they called a, um, a trichotomist. He believed in body, soul, and spirit. So he believed that Jesus didn't have a divine spirit. By the way, we at Gospel of Grace are called dichotomists. We believe that soul and spirit are interchangeable. So a human being is made up of body and soul. A great proof of that is found in Matthew 10, 28. Remember, Jesus says, Do not fear him, that's man, who can destroy the body, but he, that's God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Sometimes soul is used, sometimes spirit is used, but either way, that's the immaterial portion of man. So what happens at death is our body, the physical portion, goes into the ground, But the spirit, the immaterial portion, goes to be with the Lord in heaven for the the believer. For the unbeliever, it goes to Hades, a temporal place of torment awaiting the lake of fire. So the claim here by Apollinarius is that, no, Jesus did not have a human nature. He was so divine that he did not have truly a human spirit, that that was given up. Well, that's a big problem then because Jesus is not truly human then. And again, unless he's truly human... He can't represent us. Okay, so let me talk about the two things that we have to do to get Christ right. I want to talk about the hypostatic union. Think about this. In the hypostatic union, what we mean by that is Christ is forever the God-man. Jesus Christ 
the moment he became incarnate is forever truly God and truly man. One person with two natures. And what we want to do is affirm that, yes, he has these two natures. We have to distinguish between the two natures. But we cannot divide or divorce the natures. Remember R.C. Sproul some years ago gave a great message where he talked about to a class, he said, you know, if I separate your body and soul, he says, I've just killed you. Okay, because it's body and soul that makes up the human being. But he says, if I distinguish between your body and soul, I've rightly distinguished between the constituent makeup of the human being. So what he was trying to say is, well, wait a minute, when it comes to Christ's nature, we must distinguish but not separate. There aren't two Christ, one Christ with a divine nature and one Christ with a human nature. There's one Christ with two different natures. And Jesus operates from either nature. The natures are not commingled, like Eutychianism, where one is just morphed into the other, where his divinity so overcame his humanity that he really no longer had a human nature. No, one person with two natures. And Jesus operates from either nature. And you see this throughout his ministry. So what I want to do is I'm going to show you how we find this in the scriptures. Where do we see in the scriptures that it's revealed that there's one Christ with two natures, both truly man and truly God? Well, we see it in some amazing passages. And I know these are passages all of you are familiar with. My favorite is Matthew 8, 24 through 27. And the other passages like this in Mark, I think it's at Mark 3 or 4, um, where Jesus here is with the disciples in, this, in the boat. Notice here they're in the boat, they're on the Sea of Galilee. This huge storm comes up. It says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. Stop there. This guy doesn't get rattled. <laughs> he's so on logs. Huge storm. The thing is, the boat is about to sink, but he's sound asleep in the back of the boat. Verse 25, it says, And they, that would be the disciples, came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? Okay, one thing I want to point out is, you might say that they were amazed. Other translations would have it, they were fearful. I think the term that's used here, if I remember, is phobos. They had greater fear. Mark, his uh, text points this out too. They, they fear Jesus now more than they did the storm. So what's interesting is we think, well, that must have brought them to faith. No, in fact, they feared now Christ more than they did the storm. Now, I'm not saying that they didn't believe. I'm just saying they had greater fear of him because they realized who he was. So notice here real quickly, Jesus is operating from his human nature. He's really tired. Can we say that God gets tired? No. But Jesus was tired. Why? Because he's truly a man. Now, the next moment, he operates from his divine nature, and he's able to calm the winds and the sea. And by the way, this is more than likely a reference back to the book of Job, where even it was Yahweh alone who could walk on the waters of the sea. Remember that? Yahweh alone in the book of Job is the one who treads down the waves of the sea. So if Jesus is treading down the waves of the sea, if he controls it, who must he be? Well, he must be God. Yeah, Brian. One of my favorite examples is when Jesus is speaking, and then they come to kill him, and then he's supernaturally yeah. transported. Yes. And um, I was thinking of the, I thought you were going to mention when he heals the guy's ear. Remember they lop off Melchus, I think was his name? The ear. He heals it. And they still arrest him and go to crucify him. <laughs> you would think if someone's ear is chopped off and you have the power to put that back on and heal it, you might, you might reconsider your, your, your presupposition that this guy is not God. But they don't. So he goes from, he goes from man to God instantaneously. Exactly. In other words, here's what we want to see. In this. He can operate from either nature. Okay? That's what you want to see. Yes, he's operating from his human nature. He's asleep. He really eats food. He really gets thirsty. He really drinks. He really bleeds. He stubs his toe. He's really a man. But he can also operate from his divine nature. He can calm the waves in the sea. He can control the storm. And he operates from either nature. Now, 
Why is this important? Because it explains then texts like, remember in Matthew 24, 36, no one knows the day or the hour. Remember he says concerning the time, the, uh, the day and the hour, he says no one knows except the Father. Well, you might say, well, why doesn't the Son know? Well, because he can operate for, through either nature. In his humanity, he does not know. In his divinity, he does know. Let me show you some other texts where this becomes very evident. John eleven thirty four. John eleven thirty four. Turn your Bibles there, if you will. John eleven thirty four is a text where Lazarus has just died. And you're going to see Jesus asks a question, where have you laid him? Well, if Jesus is God, why doesn't he know? Well, of course, he does know in his divinity. But in his humanity, he asks questions. He'll often ask, where do, who touched me? Where have you laid him? He'll ask human questions. But then there's times where he knew what they were thinking. Remember, he perceived all the thoughts of the men he was debating. So you see him operate through either nature all the way through the Gospels. That's the point. So notice John eleven thirty four. 34. This is about Lazarus. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. So Jesus there is operating through his human nature. Where have you laid him? But now I want to show you, turn your Bibles ahead now to John 21, 17. John 21, 17. Here, Jesus is reestablishing Peter. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. How many times does Jesus ask Peter if he loves him? Three times. Yep, so he reestablishes Peter, showing that he still belongs. So notice, I think this is the final time, if I remember, John 21, 17. He's, yeah, he's, it says it right here. He says to him a third time, Simon, so remember that's Peter, who denied him three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So here you have the affirmation that Jesus, what? He knows all things. He is, in fact, God. Yes, uh, Linda, we'll get a, um, a microphone for you. I don't know if you, you know this offhand, but I, I remember hearing one somebody talking about translations of what the Greek, and what the words, the three words were, he's asking Peter, do you love me? And how we just have love but are they different greek words is each one different yeah you know what i I remember one may be a phileo and one may be agape or agapa so like we just see one word love but he's actually asking different levels yeah and you know what's interesting sometimes they're used interchangeably sometimes like phileo is a family love Um, agapao is often referred to as unconditional love but what's interesting is they're kind of used interchangeably so there's a lot of debate as to how they're being used i wouldn't say that it's a um, perhaps a level of love but it's it's maybe a different aspect right Um, right. i love my we see it and we just yes whatever we think love is but i think there's different exactly yeah there that we don't see very good question sometimes you'll see that with knowledge that someone knows and sometimes gnosko is used and sometimes oida but a lot of times there's so much interchangeability with those especially that there's, you can't really distinguish a difference. With love, it's a little bit more distinguishable, but sometimes it's stylistic too, so it's hard to know um, what, what John's, you know, if he's accentuating different aspects of Peter's love or if it's just a stylistic issue. It's hard to know there, but absolutely, I think you're right. Yep. Um, the big thing I want you to see here is here the apostle Peter affirms Jesus knows all things. Okay, so again, you see Jesus operate from either nature in the Bible. Sometimes he's operating from the human nature, sometimes from the divine nature. Now, there's one more heresy I want to get into, and this is a a heresy that came about in the 19th century from German theologians. As bad as Constantinople can be, Germany can be pretty rough on theology as well. We would certainly uh, affirm Luther and the, the Reformation, But in the 19th century especially onward, German theologians went left-wing. They were following false teachers who believed that the Bible was merely uh, something that had to be demythologized, that it couldn't be understood as a divine writing. And so what they believed is that Jesus, when he became the Messiah, is that he gave up his divine attributes. 
And it's called the kenosis theory. That comes from a verb that you're going to see in this text, kanao, or kanao, which means to empty. And so they said, aha, this is a passage that shows us Jesus is not God, that he emptied himself of the divine attributes. So let me just cite a couple of the bad scholars that had this, so you just have heard, maybe have heard their names. A W.F. Guess, he lived from 1819 to 1891. You'll see this from a F.R. von Franck. 1827 to 1894. Now, why am I bringing these up? Because they're ancient heresies from Germany. Well, people recycle them. You'll see them today. If you type in the kenotic theory or kenosis theory, there are people who still believe that today. So let me show you where it comes from, and I'll show you how it should be properly rendered. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul wrote this. He said, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, there's our t- term, kano'o, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. So I want you to notice here this term emptied, kano'o, that's the term for kenosis. The, the noun would be kenosis here. And the idea is that Christ emptied himself, these teachers would say, of his divine attributes. But is that what this text is really saying? I'm going to show you that, no, he did not devoid himself of his divine attributes. But what this term really means is that he humbled himself of the divine prerogative. So, in other words, Jesus, being truly God, humbled himself to the point where he allows men to kill him on a cross. And he didn't have to do that. He humbled himself, emptied himself to that extent. Now, I want to prove to you the case here. Notice, I want you to look at, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Let's look at Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Notice the context here. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. In other words, we are to be humble. Now, because you and I are to be humble and look out the interest of others, not just ourselves, does that mean we empty ourselves of our human attributes? No. So why is it that when Jesus humbled himself, these scholars from Germany are claiming that Jesus lost his divine attributes. In fact, notice verse 5. It says, have this attitude in yourselves. Okay, so we're to have this attitude where we're willing to empty ourselves and put others ahead of ourselves. Does that mean if I humble myself, am I less human? Have I lost my human attributes? I'm no longer truly body and truly soul? Well, no, you'd say, well, that's absurd. You're just humbling yourself. Well, it's absurd to say that because Christ humbled himself that he lost his divine attributes. No, the only way that someone would read that into it is they wanted to say that. These German theologians don't like that Jesus is God. That's the truth of it. But the context of the passage does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes, but rather of his divine prerogative. He who knew no sin on a cross became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how much he humbled himself for our good. Yeah, Brian. Um, MacArthur had a sermon entitled Theology of Christmas. And and this was the verse... Uh, Philippians, uh, starting with verse 6, that he used, and he emphasized, if I recall, uh, uh, with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, so we have the evil one who is grasping to be like God reaching out and do see Jesus never did that when he humbled himself. Right. So that that was a difference that he brought out in, in that sermon. Right. He has the authority to call angels and wipe out his opponents, his enemies as they're crucifying him. Yeah. But he doesn't take upon himself that divine prerogative. Right. The one who says peace be still and the sea is calmed, mm-hmm. he will one day 
still the hearts of his enemies. He will destroy them, remember, by the breath of his mouth and the, the power of his tongue. We see that in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 19. This is the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. But in his incarnation, he doesn't divorce himself of his divine attributes, but of the prerogative to use those. And so that's exactly what MacArthur is getting at, is that he did not grasp these things. He didn't hold to them to the point where he wasn't willing to humble himself and be crucified at the hands of godless men. And so the point that the writer Paul is making is if Christ is willing to humble himself to that extent, how much more should you and I be willing to humble ourselves? But again, think about the absurdity. If we humble ourselves, we don't lose our divine attribute. Or excuse me, <laughs> let, me let me back up. Er, er, let's cut that out. We don't lose our human attributes. When Christ humbles himself, he certainly doesn't lose his divine attributes. Okay, so that's where you can see the error that's being made here. It's very simple, but yet whole theologies have been built by these German theologians on the kenosis theory. Yes, Bob. No, no. Do you know of uh, specific ones? I know there's... The word of faith. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. The word of faith. Um, yeah, wh well, why don't you explain what you've seen? Because you may have seen some other names of people, too, or heard of other names. Well, the modern version of this uh, would be in the New Apostolic Reformation, some of them. Okay. Such as this Bill Johnson in Redding, California. M Mel, Mel Johnson? Bill Johnson. Oh, Bill Johnson. Okay. His claim was that and this is rather common, that when Jesus died on the cross, he lost his divinity. Mm. He gave up his divinity. And then uh, I think this ultimately came from uh, Kenyon, E.W. Kenyon. Oh, okay. And D, uh, Dan McConnell, I think. I have the material. I found it yeah. at home. So they took that idea of kenosis and said Jesus emptied himself of his divinity when he died on the cross and then went to hell, Okay, literally. And then as a mere man with no divine status is fighting with the devil, hmm. okay? And as a man, he beats the devil and then okay. ascends so... Wow. That idea was resurrected by wow. uh, E.W. Kenyon. I'll have to bring that material. I yeah. found the book the other day. I'm going through all my books, finding them again. I wow. wrote about this and shared it with some pastors in the late 1980s and early 90s. Yeah. And this, I found the first thing that I published. It was before wow. uh, Critical Issues Commentary. They just took that as, well, yeah, of course he lost his divinity on the cross. Oh, wow. How sad. And it wouldn't be fair if Jesus retained his deity while he's fighting the devil. Right, right. Wow, and that's interesting. So that is still out there. I'll find for next yeah. Sunday in Sunday school. If I can find McConnell, I'll bring it along. That would be great. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that every Christian doctrine that comes from Scripture alone is under attack from someone. Yeah. And heresy doesn't go away never to return. Right. Someone will find a new way to do that. And one thing that they'll always do is exalt the power of man and dishonor God. Amen. Okay. So to say that Christ is not fully God or he became God or he lost his divinity is in fact a total denial of the deity of Christ, because deity Amen. is eternal from ages past yes. to on into eternity. And so if Jesus is not God in hell, as they claim, then he has to gain deity back. They're blaspheming Christ, denying his deity, deity yeah. and they are followed as if they were more pious than ordinary Christians. Yes. And so... That's what led to starting Critical Issues Commentary. So that's Amen. what Thank led. you, Bob. Um, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, too, this idea that in the, some of the movements like you were mentioning that come from the Word of Faith movement, they claim Jesus descended into hell. It's not true, and you'll see that in the Creed, that he descended on the third day into hell. Well, where do they get that from? I just want to cite the passage. This is 1 Peter 3.19 
where it says, in which also he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I've done a whole message. Bob has done messages on this as well. That's not a reference to Christ descending into hell. He never did that. And one of the passages that proves that, remember in Luke 23, 46, the thief on the cross next to Jesus says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom, Jesus. Jesus says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Did Jesus have to descend into hell? No, the proclamation that he made to the spirits now in prison was a proclamation of victory as he was ascending to the heavenly realm, as he was in his resurrected state. So the proclamation was made in his resurrected state, the victory over the demonic realm. That's what's being stated. He never had to descend into hell. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He didn't have to finish it by duking it out a mano a mano as a man with Satan No, he did at the moment he died on the cross. And again, Jesus, truly God, truly man, one person, two natures. We distinguish between the natures, but we never separate them and we never commingle them. One man, two natures, truly God, truly man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our discussion today. I ask, Lord, that you'd give us clarity of thought as to who Christ is when the heretics come to the door that we may love them and give them the truth of the gospel of who Christ is and what he's done, that through faith in him, the God-man, we can have forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Be with us now to hear the sermon and understand, and so that we may be those who understand the profundity of the Lord's Supper and what great things the Lord's Supper points to. I pray that you'd be with Bob and be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.